Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Oshman family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Oshman family JCC is an incubator for new expressions of Jewish identity. It creates innovative Jewish learning, celebrations, and arts programs that inspire personal connections to people and ideas from across the Jewish world. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 167, The Meaning of Musar. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rothberg. And first of all, we want to thank everybody who was with us last week at our big party, our big online party to celebrate our one millionth download. It was so great having so many former guests on the podcast be with us again for that party and to have so many of you listeners with us at that party. We're going to release some highlights of some of the discussion at that party on our podcast feed as a bonus episode soon. So stay tuned for that. Today, we're launching a series of seven episodes for the seven weeks of the Omer. As we've talked about in previous years on the podcast, the Omer is the seven-week period between Passover and the holiday of Shavuot that recalls the seven weeks that the Israelites took to get from Egypt to Mount Sinai, where they received the Torah. Shavuot started as an agricultural holiday in which the Israelites would bring the first fruits of the spring harvest to the temple as a sacrifice to God. But after the temple was destroyed, the rabbis reinterpreted the holiday to be the celebration or the reenactment of the receiving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. Over the years, a practice emerged in which it became traditional to stay up all night on the holiday of Shavuot studying the Torah. We have all kinds of plans coming up for Shavuot. We're going to tell you about them later on in this series, but they include a special zine, an update to our website, which is a sort of digital way that you can observe the holiday of Shavuot, and all kinds of other initiatives. But we've also tried to take on the idea of the Omer, the seven-week period leading up to Shavuot, and even more importantly, jumping off from Passover and then leading up to Shavuot as an opportunity year after year to use Shavuot as a way to do what Judaism Unbound is all about, which is to reimagine our Judaism. Hopefully, Judaism Unbound all year long is helping you think about Judaism in new ways that you can incorporate into your thinking on Shavuot. But we've been thinking that the seven-week Omer period is an especially useful time to, to do that very consciously. Think about Passover as the time of liberation of our thinking, and Shavuot as the time when we're going to fold all the ideas together and try to reach some new conclusions. So this year for Shavuot, we are going to offer seven different perspectives, seven different ideas. Some of them are related to one another, but there are seven pieces of Judaism that we think most people aren't thinking about most of the time, and that perhaps if we thought about them, we might find really useful material there to fold into our Judaism on Shavuot. And today, we're going to start with the topic of Musar. We're going to hear from our guest today, and also next week, some takes on this approach to Judaism that has ancient roots, but that also really emerged most powerfully in the modern era. Our guest today is David Jaffe. He is a writer and a teacher whose life work seeks to integrate spiritual wisdom, social justice, reconciliation, and deep personal growth. As we'll discuss, David's work is deeply grounded in the tradition of Musar and also in Jewish spirituality that comes out of particular dimensions of Hasidism. 
David's book, Changing the World from the Inside Out, A Jewish Approach to Personal and Social Change, won the 2016 National Jewish Book Award in the category of Contemporary Jewish Life and Practice. As David describes it on his website, Changing the World from the Inside Out distills centuries of Jewish wisdom about cultivating and refining the inner life into an accessible program for building the qualities necessary to accomplish sustainable change. David Jaffe is an ordained rabbi from the Bat Ayin Yeshiva in Israel, and he also has a master's degree in Jewish studies from the Jewish Theological Seminary of Conservative Judaism and a master's of social work from Columbia University. He is a charter member of the International Rabbinic Fellowship of Open Orthodox Judaism. We're thrilled to welcome David Jaffe to Judaism Unbounded to jump into this really important and interesting topic. David Jaffe, welcome to Judaism Unbounded. So great to have you. Great to be here, Dan. I wanted to start by thinking about a concern that Judaism, that the practice of Judaism appears to be disconnected from making the world a better place, right? That that on the one hand, there's uh, people who seem to be the ones who are the most diligent practitioners of Jewish practices, of Jewish rules and regulations, uh, who sometimes seem to spend way too much time, in the opinion of others, on their own experience, their own sense of what they're supposed to be doing, contra to other people who may see their most driving sense of what Judaism is all about as tikkun olam, making the world a better place, but it seems to be, and or the critique upon them will be that it's not that it's not accompanied with enough sort of uh, traditional Jewish practices. And and so I'm wondering, as a place to start, if you could talk about how you connect the idea of what we do as individuals with the purpose of Judaism to transform the world. That's actually a uh, quite an old question, one that uh, a lot of our teachers have been bothered by and dealt with. The Rabbi Chaim Chernowitz, in his autobiography, uh, Chernowitz lived in uh, the shtetls of Europe and then uh, uh, passed away in the 1940s. He writes that in his uh, growing up, there were synagogues that were organized according to different professions. You had a hat maker synagogue, a shoemaker synagogue, and a horse thieves synagogue. And he writes that, you know, that was a problem. There was an ethical problem. You were going to pray, and then you were going to steal horses. So I, I see that question kind of, and what he's talking about, really in a similar light. Uh, and, and it's something that uh, I think of and has been talked about in our tradition as, as the gap and bridging the gap. And, uh, and that is a big problem. And it was a problem that the uh, 19th century Musar movement really came to try to deal with. And so one of the great Musar teachers of the last generation, a man named Rabbi Shlomo Volbe, who lived in Israel, passed away in 2005. He writes in a very powerful essay called uh, The Powers of Amity and, uh, and Distance in the World. He says that this is a world that's one of closeness and connection is the essential state of this world. Humans are close to animals, to the earth. We're made of dust and ashes. We're all connected. So how did things end up the way they are with such separation? And then he quotes, he says that uh, one of the medieval commentators says that the word for cruelty in Hebrew, achzar, achzariyut, is from the same Hebrew root as kizar, which means to make someone a stranger. And when we estrange from each other, that's when we're able to oppress and be cruel to each other. And he says, the only reason we would do that in a world of closeness 
is because we have this thing inside us, this drive for instant gratification that confuses us and makes us forget who we really are. And so what Musar comes to do and what I think Jewish spirituality in general comes to do is to help us remember and remember that we're actually really connected. And Jewish ritual, I think when done right, helps us remember that. I'd like to explore both of these dimensions as we go on in the conversation. But for the sake of our listeners, I want to put out here that as I understand your work and your writing, uh, you're focused on on two things that you see as complementary, but that also have distinct uh, histories. One is Musar, which you started to talk about and we'll talk about in more depth. And the other is spirituality or mysticism that are that come from the world of Hasidism. And one of the things that that I'm I'm wondering if this is a, a right uh, a right way to understand what was going on here is that both of those movements basically came about in the uh, 18th 19th centuries and I guess I'm wondering you know when you talk about how so many of these values and so much of these ideas that that Judaism fundamentally should be about. Uh, making the world a better place, et cetera, are, are, are the most ancient, are from our earliest sources, the prophets and the Torah. And yet here come some movements in the 18th, 19th century that are fundamentally trying to give us a, a new toolbox for how to actually make sure that those values are enacted in the world. That, that it sort of seems to me like something was wrong, right? Something wasn't working. And you talked about the horse thieves synagogue, you know, the idea. And and I think there's a lot going on in our world today that I, I sit around kind of feeling stunned that Jews are involved with this. I mean, you know, what does it mean to be Jewish if it allows you to uh, engage in some of these these terrible activities, some of which are just sort of basic crimes and some of which are actually um, problems of a, of a much grander uh, nature in terms of, of our world and our society. And so, so I guess I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about those movements at their time and also how we're sort of accessing them today as kind of correctives, right? As meaning saying that, that actually perhaps the best way to be Jewish, the most authentic way to be Jewish in terms of its enactment of the animating values of Judaism is not necessarily to yearn for the most ancient, the oldest way of being Jewish. That, that perhaps sometimes uh, throughout our history, we found that actually we needed to put some new things on the table in order to really make these systems work well. Right. So first I would say I wouldn't call them completely new. You know, um, like Rabbi Nachman of Breslev, who is one of the great Hasidic masters from the early part of the 19th century, late 18th century, he said, I'm coming to teach you something new that's old. And so I think in Jewish renewal, there has constantly been an attempt to try to bring in new things, but really base them on the old. And so there wasn't a complete break. And Judaism has always gone through periods of renewal. And so what you were just mentioning, Dan, uh, was happening in the 18th and 19th centuries in Europe, which were Ashkenazi Jewish phenomena, just to kind of place them kind of where they are in the Jewish world. Uh, those were attempts to do that. And I'll, I'll talk about each of them. Um, and different things that were happening in the Mizrahi Sephardi worlds as well. Um, and again, just to say, Jewish mysticism goes way back before the Hasidic movement as, um, and really is, is very old. Um, and the Hasidic movement, I like to call it applied Jewish mysticism. It took Kabbalah, it took a very esoteric tradition and made it accessible to the common person. And that was a religious revival movement of the 18th century when Jews were really downtrodden. 
Jewish spirituality had gotten pretty crusty and it was an elite few who were learning Torah and had really alive Jewish lives. And the Baal Shem Tov came onto the scene in, uh, in the early 18th century and said, you do not have to be a great Torah scholar to connect to God and have meaning in your life. What you had uh, about 100 years later in Lithuania was another religious rival movement started by uh, someone named Rabbi Israel Salanter, who was the greatest Torah scholar of his time in Lithuania. And he saw, he looked around at his world, and he said that the Enlightenment is coming east from Germany and from France. And these amazing ideas of modernity and equality and all these things, these are just going to, they're going to blow over, bowl over Judaism. And the Jews here in Eastern Europe, they're all conformist. Very few of them have a very alive Jewish life, and they're not going to be able to stand up to modernity. It's going to be too attractive to them, and they're going to leave Judaism. And so he decided that Musar, which he had been learning as a young person, is really the, the way and the antidote. And because what Musar is about, in addition to bridging the gap of the ethical and the spiritual, is about deeply integrating a spirituality inside of you and taking the amazing teachings of Judaism and making them alive in your heart. And so what he did was he republished a number of books from the Musar Canon, which is something that goes back a thousand years. And he created a program for how to integrate teachings like love your neighbor as yourself or don't steal or these different things that are kind of obvious. And someone who's studying Torah intellectually is just going to think, yeah, got it. You know, I know that's right. He says, it's not enough to know something's right. You have to feel it in your heart. So he created a whole program that involved a certain way of learning that was a Musser chanting where you would, in a very emotive way, uh, you would bring these teachings in. And so you experience crying, fear, you experience things, and they would actually, what he said, imprint on your soul. The Muslim movement created that, and he also was very clear that the ethical teachings of Judaism needed to be raised up because that was one of the features of the Enlightenment was behaving ethically towards each other, which, you know, had its contradictions and all that, but that's a good thing overall. And he looked at the Jewish community, the horse thieves example, and said, we need to raise it up. So he wanted people to be not just kosher, but yosher was the way he said it, which means kosher being the way we eat, appropriate eating, and yosher is living with integrity. And again, one last thing I would just say, while Hasidism, its primary thing is devekut or closeness with God, Musr is really about shlemut, which means integrity and wholeness and living in alignment with values and a life of holiness. So they're very complementary, but a little bit different emphases. Could you give us a few examples of what Musar really looks like on the ground? Like, can you give us some examples of what some of these traits that Musar is there to cultivate are? And how does it work in terms of, you know, what's the difference, practically speaking, between saying, I have this value, I believe in this value, I want to live my life according to this value, versus I have a Musar practice about this value? Sure. Uh, so let's take uh, uh, patience and anger, you know, as one that many people experience. And that's, a, that's one of the often worked on, you know, Musar traits. And so a Musar idea about uh, that continuum, because all Musar traits are on a continuum. Uh, and so here, say the continuum would be on the one end, despair and apathy, 
and one on the other end, hot explosive rage. And then somewhere in the middle, we're with patience and a cold anger. That's a motivational kind of anger. And so what we try to do in Musar is figure out, uh, Musa, they're called midot, these different traits. And a mida literally in Hebrew means a measure. So you're trying to figure out what's your measure? What's, where am I on this trait? No trait is all positive or all negative, because clearly there are times when, you know, having a certain amount of anger is important and then being really patient is important. So you have to know what's happening in the situation and all that. So let's take that as an example. A Musar teaching around this trait is about bearing things. So the word for patience in Hebrew is savlanut. That comes from the root for to bear something. And so it's like imagining a, a, a package or a load on your shoulder. You're holding it or with someone else. You're kind of bearing it. So savlanut is the ability to bear that and to bear the emotional discomfort that comes with that. So you could be a person who says, I'm, I want to be patient in drum. That's important to me. In Musar, we would say that's not enough. How are you practicing? How are you practicing patience? And so if someone were in a Musar group with me, what we do is we study Torah about this trait. And there's plenty of sources we would study and get a working idea of this idea of bearing emotional discomfort. And then we take on a practice. In Musar, it's called the Kabbalah. Take on a practice, a small challenge. And so one I used to use a lot when my children were younger was um, choose a 15-minute period during the day when you know you get annoyed. And during that time, do whatever you can to remember uh, your 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 patience practice. So I would choose the 15 minutes that I had to get my young children out the door uh, to preschool. And they would never want to get dressed. They would never want to go out the door. I was late for work. It was a very stressful time. Very important to note that it's just that 15 minutes. It's not deciding all day I'm going to practice this, just this little bit. And then at the end of the day, I would journal or, or, or write or talk to God about how did that go? What did I notice in my practice today? What did I notice about this trait in myself and others during the day? And then in the morning before, I would start off with a, we call a focus phrase, like a mantra. And so I'd have a line. So one that we often use for patients is, this is from a mystical Musar source from the 16th century, the date palm of Devorah. line says, I will keep my goodness flowing to you. I will keep my goodness flowing to you. And I would say that for a minute in the morning out loud. And so my mind was now set towards that. Those are the three main practices. Start with the focus phrase, have a little challenge to give yourself, and then you reflect at the end of the day. Not rocket science, but it takes discipline. So I was in my first year of teaching high school. And I was teaching ninth graders, I had a four ninth grade classes. And that year, I'm generally a patient person, but that year I exploded five times and yelled at the young people, which is very unusual for me. So I'm in class and there's four boys playing with something in the back of the classroom. And I call out to them, boys, you need to sit down. Two of them sit down. Call again, boys, you need to sit down. Another one sits down. Finally, this last boy, Kevin, is still standing up. And now I'm in a showdown. Any experienced teacher would never get in that situation. And I could feel my blood boiling and it was coming up. And I, it, it was going to feel so good to let loose on this kid and just scream at him. And then I remembered the focus phrase I was working on that week, which was, I will keep my goodness flowing to you. I'll keep my goodness flowing to you. And in a, an instant, I looked at him and I just remembered I loved him and I wanted my goodness to flow to him. And the blood started going down in me. And I was able to say to him with just the right tone, Kevin, you need to sit down. And he got it and he sat down and we moved on. I was like, wow, this practice definitely works.
I have a general pet peeve with the universe, um, but especially with the Jewish universe, which is that we are so excited to talk about how old things are, um, including sometimes when they're sort of old, but also new. And what I mean by that is there will come up, there, there will be some great practice whether it's, I mean, the example I often think about is like Jewish yoga today, Jewish meditation. Um, and people will be ready to go and be, Jewish yoga has existed for centuries and centuries, millennia. Like we can find forms of this in ancient times that are loosely analogous to what we're talking about with yoga. And like ultimately, look, yoga comes from a different culture from our own and we are appropriating it in a variety of ways that, that may be beautiful and may sometimes be problematic. But like ultimately, to say that Jewish yoga is ancient is sort of part true, but it's also not entirely true. And what I appreciate what, about what you just said is you did make the claim that Musar is very old. Um, you responded to David before and you, and you talked about this. Um, but then you also said, look, the Enlightenment is at play here. The Enlightenment is a huge a huge piece of influence that people are responding to. And it's not just affecting Musar, it's affecting, um, and honestly, more than affecting, I would argue the Enlightenment is like the seed for Hasidism in many ways. You read everything from the work of Rabbi Nachman to, say, the founder of Chabad, um, who writes the Tanya at the time, which are, are both drawing very deeply from the context in which they are living, in addition to Jewish values. And you, and you feel the enlightenment and this push for reason and this push for new ways of, of Jewish thinking. And so I, I wanted to bring that up. And I guess what what I wanted to do is also sort of map this onto Musar now. And so what I'm, what I'm asking is um, sort of to give a little bit more of the story of what Musar was initially and, and has been, but also sort of shuttle it forward to what it is now, because I, I want to make the claim that what Musar is now is not the same as what it was at the beginning, it, but it is drawing a great deal from that tradition. So I'd love to hear from you. What are some of the ways Musar evolved over time and how are people revitalizing it or in certain ways reinventing it now? Sure. Uh, yeah. So these things, again, the old and the new are always mixed together and we're in dialogue constantly. You know, Musar as its own discipline, uh, again, I'll go back all the way back to the Torah, for Kedoshim Tihiyu, be holy because I am holy, Leviticus 19. That's a Musar statement. You're supposed to live a certain way. Pirkei Avot, the ethics of the fathers from 2,000 years ago, are filled with Musar. But we don't get any instruction. How do you actually become humble? How do you actually become trusting, trusting in God, all that, until the 11th, 10th, 11th century, out of Rav Sadia Gaon from uh, the, you know, Babylonia, that world, and then uh, a rabbi named Bachi Ibn Pakuda from Spain, who was a great teacher in Spain, who wrote a book called The Duties of the Heart. How do you develop these qualities? That's a lot seen as one of the first Musar books. He was in dialogue with the Sufi masters of Spain and the Muslim world. And a colleague of mine, uh, Professor Diana Abel, has written a whole book about the hadiths and the stories from the Quran that show up in Duties of the Heart and how there's a back and forth. So that's all the way starting at the beginning, a thousand years ago. And that dialogue has continued over time. Beginning 19th century in psychology at that point, you have the idea of training and the understanding of the image of the horse and the rider and the, you needed to train the horse. And that was how and we were like that. 
our animal nature is like a horse or an animal and we need to train it. And so that psychology Can we steal from, the horse? You said we, the horse? Yeah, only if you're in that shul. You have to yeah. join that shul first. So the, um, the, that whole perspective on psychology shows up in one of the Musar books from the early 19th century called Sefer Cheshbon Nefesh, which translates as the book of soul, S-O-U-L, our soul accounting. How do we account for ourselves and our soul? And he drew from that psychology of how he understood how we train ourselves to develop different character traits. And his book is very closely related to Ben Franklin's autobiography, where Ben Franklin goes through 13 traits and how to work on them. And he also does the 13 traits and how to work on them. Another example of this dialogue. The 19th century Musar movement, uh, Rabbi Salanter, his Musar was very fire and brimstone and very based in an idea of what is sometimes called uh, onesh or fear of punishment and um, and trying to change for the better because you're afraid uh, you know of punishment of hell of, of whatever that only lasted really a couple of generations by the third generation of Musar, Rabbi Nussin Svi Finkel, who was a founder of the great Slobodka Yeshiva, his whole perspective was we have to focus on the greatness of humans, not on like kind of, uh, you know, how humans are going to go to hell or whatever, but, but really our greatness. And that's the perspective we need to take. And fast forward to really our own generation. Uh, Dr. Alan Marinus, who is a very close uh, teacher and colleague of mine, and really, I would say, the person responsible most for the renaissance of interest in Musar in North America in the last 20 years. He um, he tells a story, I heard this from him, about the early Musar yeshivas. He had these three yeshivas that grew out of Rabbi Salanter. One I mentioned, Slobodka, which focused on the greatness of human. There were other, another yeshiva called Navardic that was much more about developing intense trust. And one day, the Slobodka guys came to the Navardic yeshiva, and they saw that Navardic guys had hanging in the middle of their study hall, where they were sitting, a rotting fish hanging from the roof of the Beit Midrash. And the Salbutka says, look, how gross is that? How disrespectful is that? That they're studying Torah, the rotting fish. And they asked, what are you guys doing? And they said, we have it here to remind us of our mortality, that we are rotting and we're going to die. And it helps our spirituality. The Salbutka guys went back to their teacher and they said, can you believe what those Navardic guys are doing? Isn't that disgusting? And his response to them was, does it work? And that, I think, is a very important uh, idea in Musar and answers is gets to your question, Lex, that Musar is always been based on does it work? And is, are these teachings and practices we're doing, do they actually impact people and make us grow as holy human beings who are living with integrity? And that's going to change as we learn more things about how humans work. I love that question of does it work? Um, and so I wanted to poke at that. And specifically, I want to get at what I see as what I read as your Torah, um, what I read as as your, um, and hopefully I will encapsulate it in, the, in a similar way to how you see it, and if I don't, correct me. Um, but what I understood you as writing, especially everything down to your title, that's when you know it's somebody's Torah, like when it's really, like you're talking about changing from the inside out. You're actually not focused only 
on internal change. What I read from that title, Change from the Inside Out, is that internal change is key, but it's actually a means towards the broader end goal, which is societal change, which is broader change. And I wanted to bring that up for a few reasons. One is that this is a huge struggle of mine with Musar, generally, um, if I'm going to be most straightforward. Like, it's a huge skepticism I have of, of Musar, is that when I encounter... Musar, Musar groups, people's approaches to Musar. I, I know that the, I know that the intention, I know that the understanding is that, that dwelling in deep personal improvement along axes of midot, of, of Jewish values, of sort of character traits. I under, I know that what the idea is, is that doing that for yourself, looking inward, will allow you to then contribute to the entire collective world. Um, more, I understand that that's the, the idea. What I struggle with is I, I don't always know if it works to go to that does it work question. I don't always know if people who really work hard on their own internal sense of humility or of courage or of whatever it is, I don't always know if it translates. And I think, um, about a, a, I'll give a couple versions of what I mean. One is that I think of all the people in the world who, couldn't who you'll talk to them they're they're the most interpersonally kind people that they they check all the boxes they hold the door they'll they'll smile at you they'll be pleasant conversationalists in all sorts of ways they're people that others would gravitate towards and then they uphold systems of violence and white supremacy and whatever um in our world and we can point to all sorts of historical and contemporary instances of that and so for me ultimately if i had to choose between people that like i interact with them interper- interpersonally and i think oh maybe they're not the most humble maybe they're not the most like checking all the boxes interpersonally but like they're committing their life to deconstructing systems of oppression like that sort of wins in my in my world and and my my question is how can uh, how can we fully ensure that that next step of the the inside out the out part how can we ensure that that happens and that it doesn't get stuck only in the in the in the internal change what what does it look like to use musar as a means towards an end and not just as the the internal change itself the question you ask is deeply uh, resonant for me and uh and 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 bothers me tremendously and it's really see it as my life's work to try to respond to that and i do want to start by just saying a little bit about my background and kind of how i come to this so two things happened to me in uh when i was about 21 22 years old that really set me on this path and the and they involved politicization and then a spiritual opening the first was, um, I was always a spiritual kid growing up. I would go out in the woods, talk to God, uh, but there wasn't really an outlet so much for me uh, growing up um, in the family I grew up in, which was a wonderful, you know, I uh, went to Hebrew school, went to synagogue, but it wasn't a particularly spiritual. Uh, a good friend of mine passed away when I was 20, and that kind of broke open the spiritual search for me to try to see what was happening. And I wanted to know more about what was beyond this material world. At the same time, I had a political awakening, and I'll come back to the spiritual in a minute, where I was in a fraternity uh, on my campus, and um, this was a, unfortunately a typical fraternity where women were not treated well, uh, and I had separated myself from it to some degree, but in my senior year, there was a date rape case where uh, 
the the woman who was the uh, the victim pressed charges against the fraternity and uh, ended up opening up a whole thing on the campus where the fraternity was investigated. And to my uh, dismay and and disappointment, the guys in the fraternity circled the wagons, did not use it as an opportunity for tshuva. I was dating at the time a uh, a woman who was uh, very involved in feminist circles at the university. And um, we would have conversations about this, but I just couldn't get it that, like I said, these are they're basically good guys. Yeah, there's some bad stuff, but they're basically good guys. I, she couldn't break through to me. One day, um, people came and spray painted the fraternity with uh, words rapist and murderer on the cars and on the walls. And I was so angry about this. This was property damage. That's really bad. And I said, you know what? My girlfriend knows who did this. And I went to Sarah and I said, you know who did that? Like, tell me who did it. And she said, wow, you're getting way more upset about that than you did about the original incident. Fast forward, end of semester, um, fraternities kicked off campus for four years. They decide that this place is so bad it needs to be totally cleaned out. I go into my favorite restaurant in town and I'm wearing my fraternity cap and the waitress is being very rude to me. And at the end of the meal, I say, why are you being so rude to me? She says, you wearing that cap in here is if you were Jewish and I wore a swastika hat into your restaurant. And still I got really defensive about it. And I walked out and then I realized, wow, if she really feels that way, something really, really bad is going on here. And I called my now ex-girlfriend, she had gotten tired of me, and I said to her, I'm ready, I'm ready to change. And um, she introduced me to someone at the uh, a men's network uh, organization, and I had my first conversation ever with someone about toxic masculinity and ways of being a man that were different. And that whole incident, I decided at that point, I need to change, and I need to live in alignment with my values. If I think I'm basically a respectful, good guy, I need to actually behave that way and I need to stand up when I see things happening and not be complicit anymore. Same time, I'm on the spiritual search and I'm trying to find things. I pick up a book on Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, and it's impenetrable to me. I, I can't understand what it's saying. Uh, and, uh, and then I'm teaching in high school at this point and one of my colleagues says, hey, you wanna come to a Buddhist chanting circle with me? And I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. So I went with her and we sat in the living room and we chanted with a bunch of people and it was great. And I really enjoyed it. And it was the first time I was in a really spiritual environment that was heart opening about the soul and we were doing a practice. And so I was with them for a few months. This is in New York City. And they eventually asked me, they say, David, do you want to um, join our group? We have a whole kind of ceremony you go through and you become part of this, this community. I said, you know, I'm Jewish. I really, I really can't do that. And they said, oh, we have plenty of Jews in here. And uh, no, 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 no. Eventually I broke down. I was like, all right, I'll, I'll join. So the ceremony was on a Friday night in uh, Union Square in New York. And we have this dinner beforehand. And my sponsor happens to be another Jewish guy. And he tells me, okay, this is what's going to happen. You go up to the front, you sit in the front with the other three initiates in this temple, and this priest is going to come out, and he's going to say a few things in Korean, and you say, I do, when he finishes the statement, and then you are now part of the community, and we'll put the shrine up in your apartment, and you'll have that. I have a flashback to my grandfather, who was a major Jewish influence in my life, lived in Brooklyn. He was the president of a synagogue. And he used to sit in his office, his home office, listening to reel-to-reel cantorial music. Then I get a flashback of the rabbi who performed my bar mitzvah 
doing the priestly blessing on me as I'm sitting there. And I realize, what am I doing here? I have to get out of here. And so I fudge the I do's and I don't say I, I, I fudge it. And the ceremony ends. I start leaving. My sponsor comes up to me all excited. I say, don't call me. I'll call you. I've got to get out of here. I stumble outside into the cold New York night. I get on the F train back to Brooklyn to my apartment and I'm spinning. My head is spinning. And so I came out of that with a sense of I, there's, there's something called a spiritual reality in this world that connects everything. And it was a real mystical reality of a sense of oneness of the whole world. And then how do we actually live that in reality, a sense of that oneness? And then a sense of political, wanting to live with political integrity. And how did these things come together? So that was really the origin of my own path. And then I became, as I became more involved with Judaism, I saw that Judaism is a, it's, it's not a religion of personal salvation like Christianity. It's a religion of universal salvation. And so the individual's growth and individual's development is incredibly important, but it's all for an end of we want to bring the whole world to that point. And so that's, I think, mystical, spiritual way of saying, Les, what you were just saying about ending oppression and, and, and living in a world of social justice. And it has to be integrated that way. So how do we make this about oppression? and about ending systems of oppression, which are the next level out from interpersonal excellence and not stop there. So that's really the genesis of this project and what's really been driving me is that I think there's incredible potential in these practices and in these Torahs for looking at internal bias and for looking at um, ending racism and for overturning sexism and approaching all these things. But that Torah hasn't been created yet. Could you talk a little bit about how the approach to Musar connected to mysticism that you are talking about? Can you talk a little bit about how that's distinct from a more usual approach to Musar? Sure. Um, and I don't know if this is exclusive. to I don't think it's exclusive to me. I've met many people who are very deeply connected to Rabin Ahmed or Breslev, who also are very connected to Musar and to uh, the teachings of Revolbe. And, and, and the two really, I think, go together well, but they're different paths a little bit. Rabin Nachman is, uh, uh, you know, has a whole set of practices that are, I think, not contradictory, but uh, inform a lot of what I do. So, for example, the practice of Hitbodidut, which is a, a spontaneous prayer in your own language. Uh, I like to think of it as a, a date with God. You know, you have a relationship with someone, you have the bills, you have the kids, all that. And then Hitbodidut is the date night where it's just you and God, we're talking, like whatever's going on. And that's a very core practice. So what I'll do is I'll have those conversations with God. Um, but then also a lot of times I'll bring in my midot that I'm working on. And I'll talk about my Musar practice there. And uh, which again, I think is, doesn't contradict anything that's from the Breslau tradition, but may not be something that kind of classic Musar people, you know, might do. Um, Rabbi Nachman has another wonderful practice called finding the good points, you know, in people. And, uh, and, and that's very related to a kavod practice of, uh, of um, seeing dignity and how do we see people and show them we see who they are and show them their good points. Say we see this about you. So uh, they integrate in that way for me. But it's really, I think, an orientation and a sense of the, what we call tikkun midot, the elevation, the recreation of midot is to make God's presence more present here. In, in myself, in my relationship with other people. We've hinted a number of times so far to education 
and we've talked about your literal experience as a teacher. And um, so I want to I want to really dive into that because I think that it's not an accident that you, somebody who has spent a great deal of time as an educator, as somebody who is working with the development of intellect, but also of character, et cetera, et cetera, the things that happen in good schools, is thinking a great deal about Musar, which has the potential to do that. And 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 when I when I engage with Musar, like I do think that even those who do it individually, it's sort of like a self-guided educational experience. It's 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 learning. It is learning and then applying, to use the word you used before about Hasidism as sort of applied mysticism. So I, well, let's talk about schools and let's talk about um, education through a Musar lens. Um, I, I was thinking back to my own experience, as I selfishly do hearing others talk about their beautiful stories. I was thinking about my own time in growing up in elementary school, middle school, and high school. I went to a private school that was not religiously affiliated in any respect, um, but it was a K through 12 institution with um, a very deep culture in all sorts of wonderful and also very problematic ways. Um, it was an elite private school with some of the expected problems you would, you would see there along affluence, et cetera, et cetera. But it also did a lot of things really well. And it interestingly, I never thought about it this way, but it had like Musar, in a sense, it wasn't a Jewish school, but like it had Musar at its center. But I think it had Musar at its center in a in a not full fledged way. There was an idea called the Common Trust, and it was a literal statement that was on the wall of every classroom and is on the wall of every classroom in the school. And it stated that that everybody in this school commits to the following five. I would say midot. They didn't say midot. They uh, values. I, they, I would say you know traits. Um, or aspirations, respect, trust, honesty, fairness, kindness. It can. St- it, I haven't looked it up recently. It still flows off my tongue because it was so frequent in our educational experience that we talked about respect, trust, honesty, fairness, and kindness. And so on paper, that's really wonderful. And I think it was wonderful. And I think it got us thinking, it got us realizing both consciously and subconsciously that we're not only at school to learn knowledge, we're in school to grow as human beings. And that's a good thing. Now, here's my issue. My school was an elite private school in the most segregated city in the country, Milwaukee. And we did very, very little in terms of connecting with institutions in the community to really focus on issues of justice. So I wanted to bring that up as as another layer onto this ongoing thread we've been having about sort of the the level one version of Musar and then the level two version of Musar. Because I know that that you would look at that ultimately Musar curriculum, there's these five attributes. And I know that you would say, that's okay, but let's let's strive for the next level. So I'm wondering if you have examples of whether it's institutions or people or et cetera, that have really done that work of of changing the out, not just the inside, to steal from your book's title. Let me give you an example. It's actually school-based. So I was at Gann Academy, uh, which is a, just a, a wonderful uh, Jewish uh, pluralistic school in the Boston area. And, uh, and we started a booster program there. Um, and one, uh, one night I was there late and uh, I was talking to the foreman on a night, night cleaning crew who was a, uh, uh, these guys were part-time workers about 18 hours a week, uh, mostly all Spanish speakers, immigrants. Uh, and I asked how his work conditions were. And he said, not so good because we're not getting the health benefits we're supposed to get, we're not getting uh, uh, sick leave, different things from the contractor that we had been working with. 
I ended up going to the head of school and saying, you know, this is not okay. Like that we have contractors that aren't treating the workers well. And he charged me and the head of school, I mean, the, the CFO to create an ethical contractor policy. And it's in place in the school and they follow it. And I feel like that's a key step in Musar because it's not enough to just have people and individuals who are trying to act well with each other, but the systems that we function in need to also be reflecting those same values. And again, that's the change in the world from the inside out aspect. The inside out aspect is the inside and outside need to reflect each other. And we have to bridge that gap. And so by the whole school behaving with the kind of cavo dignity towards its lowest income workers and most vulnerable workers it has, that's reinforcing the dignity that we want the students to be having with each other. And I would say then we want to play that out on a broader level into the, the city and the societal level. So thinking about you know the school you're operating in in Milwaukee, if they were really serious, and again, I don't know the school, don't know the situation, I'm just saying theoretically. If they're really serious about respect, then you have to look at, okay, well, what's the respect we're having for the town around us and the village around us? And you have to keep playing that out. And the more we live with the gap between those things, I think that's, the, that, that's not holiness. And the idea is to have people who are doing the work of social change, who are already out there, kind of committed to that kind of work, be able to ground it in some of these spiritual and ethical teachings so the inner and the outer aligns. So we want to have that alignment all the way through. I want to pick up on some of what you just talked about, that a lot of your work right now is um, with people who are already engaged in social justice activism. And, and it's interesting to me to, to, to hear that, because to some extent, how you're working to solve the problem is also a, an indication of what you think the, the problem or the challenge is. Because I, I think, right, there are two things going on in our world, right? One, number one, that people uh, aren't engaging in enough work for social justice. And the other is that people who are working for social justice, like you were talking about earlier, may not feel fully integrated or may not be fully integrated and, and it actually would help them. But could you talk a little bit more about that? Because we talk all the time about how a new project should really start where it's got the most teeth and with an understanding that then it, it grows from there. And so things shouldn't be judged on where they start. They should be judged based on the opportunity. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about your sense of where this all might go. I mean, your fantasy version of how this approach to Judaism and perhaps even beyond Judaism might might actually be manifest in the world in 10, 20, 30, 100 years, you know, if you if it really worked the way that you imagine that it ought to. You know, my big, big, big vision is that uh, we have a Jewish world, all parts of it, that are living with integrity and living, walking this holy path of bridging the gap uh, between deep values and, uh, and our actual behavior in the world on all those levels, interpersonal and social and communal. Um, so that, that's the big, big vision. Where this project happens to be starting is where is with people who are already committed to um, doing the work of social change. And so they're working on that systemic level. And now we're bringing the inside part to that for several reasons. 
Um, one, because when you're engaged in power in that kind of way and trying to build power, manipulate power, it's very easy to get separated from ethics and other ethical uh, sensibilities. And so I think it's essential that we remain what's called in organizing power with and not power over and not domination. And our long Jewish ethical tradition combined with power can really be helpful. That's one. Two is many, many Jews, you know, in our era and the last period have been separated from our lineage. And so I think connecting back to lineage when you're working on these bigger systemic issues helps ground us. I know it's helped ground me and feel like I have a place to stand in when I'm now in coalition with people who come from other lineages. So that's two. Three is it's hard to be up against face-to-face with suffering on a regular basis where there's lots of defeats all the time. And you have some victories, but lots of defeats. So you need soul nourishment in doing that. So those are the three main reasons why we're trying to bring these resources to those people who are doing that work most there. Thanks so much for joining us, David Jaffe. This has been a fantastic conversation. It's great to be here, Lex. Thank you. And thanks as well to all of you out there listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and we hope that you'll tune in again in the future. We want to close out this episode in the same way that we always do by encouraging you to be in touch with us. And there are a wide variety of ways for you to do that. First, you can head to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. Second, you can go to our Twitter feed at at Judaism Unbound. Third, you can go to our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And last but not least, you can always hit us up via email at Dan at JudaismUnbound.com or Lex at JudaismUnbound.com. Our last request is that if you are able to, we always appreciate financial donations of any amount, uh, whatever you're able to allocate, and you can do that at judaismunbound.com donate with either a one-time gift or a monthly recurring donation. So thanks so much for listening, and with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.